Our sermon text this morning picks up where we left off last week, Matthew chapter 8. We will be uh, looking at and going through verses 18 to 27. Again, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 27. This is God's word. Listen to it. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we come to you this morning, and now we come to you in this portion of your worship service where we have uh, the opportunity to hear your word. We pray, dear Lord, that you would humble us. We pray, Father, that you would have us uh, sit under your word and that you would instruct us Lord, in this passage this morning are things that many people have a hard time hearing. This miraculous calming of the storm. For some folks, this is too much to believe. It's too great. Their experience does not allow for such a thing to take place. Lord, show us that our experience does not determine what is true. Show us, O Lord, that your word is truth, and it alone is truth. And we pray, Father, that our experience, as well as our whole lives, who we are, would be conformed to the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there is an alarming trend in the church today, and many of you are aware of it. Many of you have been in churches where this is the case, and thankfully for our church, we're still fairly young. We're fairly new. We haven't seen a lot of this, but uh, this most alarming trend, or one of the most alarming trends, is that there are uh, a generation, a generation of young people who are growing up, and when they, once they hit a certain age, typically when they go off to college, they get away from the church that they have been a part of all their lives, and over time, over that four-year period, they wander away, and they never return. And this is a phenomenon that is taking place across the board. In liberal churches and conservative churches, it's taking place. And it has reached, indeed, epidemic proportions. It's something that we need to be concerned about. And so there are many church leaders who are doing what they can. They're trying to understand this situation, and they're trying to do what they can to reverse it. There's a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Her name is Kenda Creasy-Dean, and she has recently written a book Uh, And uh, because of this book, she was interviewed by uh, CNN.com. 
And in this interview, she said that, and it was interesting because she would not be a part of what we would typically, typically consider to be a, a, a conservative Christian background. Uh, she is actually a minister in the United Methodist Church. Uh, she uh, is a professor at a fairly liberal uh, theological seminary. And yet what she has to say, I think, is important for us to understand. She says that many American teenagers have been taught by their parents and the church to be fake Christians. Fake Christians. She says that churches have been teaching what is called, and this is a buzzword now apparently, a moralistic therapeutic deism. A moralistic therapeutic deism. And teenagers who once embraced this mutant form of Christianity, this, these are her words, this mutant form of Christianity, now desire to leave it behind. It has nothing to offer to them. They've been taught throughout their lives that all God wants for them is to be happy. All God wants for them is to have a good sense of self-esteem. All God wants, then, is to just sort of let them go. That's the deistic part of things. He can retreat then to his heaven and have nothing to do with what's going on on the face of the earth. But this is not Christianity at all, is it? This, this therapeutic, moralistic deism. There's no Christianity at all. When a young person faces the hardships of life for the very first time, and often this happens in college, it happens in the classroom, it happens in the college dormitory. If they have been raised on this type of Christianity, they are not prepared for the storms that they will face. They are ill-equipped if all they have learned from the church is that God wants them to feel good and do good. But that it doesn't actually, God doesn't actually want to be involved in their lives. The world can be brutal. You know this. We all get beaten around every day of the week. And this type of God that is being, has been offered by the American church for some time now, it gives no comfort, no security to our children. Well, in this morning's passage, this passage that I've just read to you, Jesus leaves no doubt that the life of a disciple, a life of, the, of a disciple of his, is called to an uneasy life. He's called to a life that is not easy. Should his followers, should the followers of Jesus Christ, should we expect a life that is easier than Jesus himself lived? Well, Jesus makes it clear in this passage and other passages that we will encounter as we work our way through the scriptures that following him requires a total commitment. The world opposed Jesus and it will oppose us. And if we are committed to Jesus, we can count on this. There will be resistance. But this passage also makes clear one other thing and one very important thing. And that is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He controls the wind and the waves. He alone can, by the power of his voice, tell the storm to be quiet. And the storm will obey him, because he is God. Well, I'd ask you, as we consider these verses this morning, uh, to think about this. Jesus committed himself to die on the cross in your place and my place, so that we would be able to follow him through the trials of life. Jesus committed himself to die on the cross in your place and my place so that you and I would be able to follow him through the trials of life, through the storms that we face. We're looking at this passage in three sections. We're looking at verses 18 and 19 and then 21, and I've labeled this to follow Jesus. 
And then we'll look at verse 20, and then 22 and 24, and I've labeled this section, the cost. And then finally, verses 25 to 27, the Son of Man. Again, to follow Jesus, verses 18 and 19, and then verse 21. The cost, verse 20, and then verses 22 to 24. And finally, the Son of Man, verses 25 to 27. So let's look first at this idea of following Jesus, verses 18 and 19 and verse 21. You can see here, Matthew has made reference uh, several times now about the crowds who are following Jesus. And these crowds have become a hindrance to Jesus, haven't they? They've become a hindrance to him being able to minister to the people that he needs to minister to. And so in verse 18, Jesus commands his disciples to make ready a ship. They're going to sail across the Sea of Galilee from west, from west to east. And they're going to land, uh, as we learn later on in this chapter, in the, 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 county of, or the country of the Gadarenes, in the Decapolis. Now, it's a small journey, really. It's only about uh, seven or eight miles uh, to cross this. The Sea of Galilee is really not more than a lake. And so it's a small journey. But it's enough for Jesus to put some distance between himself and this uh, rabid crowd who is following him. Well, as he uh, makes this announcement to his disciples, there's a scribe who comes up to him. And we read in verse 19 that the scribe says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus is getting ready to depart. He's going to go to the other side of the lake. And this scribe says to him, I will follow you. Now it is safe to assume that by this time, out of the multitudes of people who have been following Jesus for for some time now, that there have been a number of people who have come up to Jesus and said just that same thing. I will follow you. Wherever you go, I'll follow you. Well, Jesus knew how to sort through his followers. Jesus knew this man's heart better than this man knew his own heart. And he's discerning what's going on. And and the question, uh, or or, or what Jesus says to him, uh, reveals to the man his own heart. Well, the man is making an offer to follow Jesus, and he sounds quite committed, doesn't he? He's willing to throw it all in with Jesus and follow him. But it's one thing to make an offer, and it's another thing to follow through on the offer once it has been taken up. In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13... Jesus gives the example of the seed that fell on the rocky ground. And you remember this parable. A little bit later in in that chapter, he gives the explanation to his disciples so they can understand what he's talking about. There wasn't much soil there in the rocky sand, on the rocky soil. And because of that, the seed immediately sprang up. But the result of having very little soil is that when the sun beat down upon uh, this plant that, that sprang up, the plant was scorched. It had no root. It withered away. And Jesus will later explain in that same chapter that the different soil types are different types of people who hear the word of God preached to them. And he says that the seed that is sown in the rocks is like the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He immediately hears it. He receives it with joy. He embraces uh, this word that he has heard. But he has no root in himself. He endures for a while. But there's tribulation and there's persecution that comes his way and he withers away. He can't withstand it. Now, the scribes expressed zeal to follow Jesus seems indicative of this type of soil, this type of person who uh, immediately hears the word. He receives it with joy. He wants to follow Jesus of all he has. But there's no evidence that he's really going to follow through. And so Jesus exercises caution in his response to this man. He knows the man's heart because he is God. But he he doesn't immediately accept the man's offer to follow him, does he? But it's important to note that he doesn't flatly reject him either. What he's doing is a, he's making a statement that causes this man to, desi- to, excuse me, to diagnose the desires of his heart. 
He simply says here, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, according to Bishop J.C. Ryle, Jesus' encounter with the scribe is something we have, uh, we in the church, especially the leaders, we need to be very careful about. We We need to observe how Jesus interacts with this man very carefully. We should take it to heart. He says, it may be feared that the lesson these words contain is too often overlooked by the ministers of the gospel. And that thousands are admitted to full communion who are never warned to count the cost. Nothing, in fact, has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and to talk fluently about his experiences. He says this is a great danger to the church to just open the doors and let anybody in. He says we need to exercise caution, prudence, wisdom when we are exercising the keys of the kingdom. Now the scribe, like many would-be followers of Jesus, may simply be caught up in the moment. He may be really caught up like a a fan or a, a groupie. He wants to go along with what everybody else is doing. We don't know. He may not be stopping to consider what it means to follow the Messiah, the suffering servant who is prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Well, there's a second encounter with a would-be follower of Jesus, and this occurs in verse 21. But this, is, this encounter is very different than the first encounter that Jesus has. Verse 21 says, Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So first we have a scribe. Now we have a man who's described as a disciple. One who seems to be a little closer, possibly. A little more uh, within the, the wider circle of the followers of Christ. Well, this man, just because he's described as a disciple, does not necessarily mean that he is one, one of the ones who will become the twelve disciples. Jesus hasn't quite, he hasn't called all of his disciples, that, that inner group, the apostles to himself at this point. He has a number of them, a handful of his disciples, those closest men, but he hasn't called all of them yet. But he is, at the least, among the larger group who is designated as, uh, as a disciple, as those who have identified themselves with Jesus. Now, Jesus is about to sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and be away from Capernaum for a time. And Jesus is basically saying here, who will follow me? Who will follow me to the other side? And this disciple indicates that he wants to come, but he's got to do something first. He's got to go home and bury his father. Now, it's hard to understand what he means here. There was a, there was a at that time in, in uh, Jewish culture, uh, there, was a, there was a burial of, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of the body of a dead person and then after a year or so, the bones that had been buried would be taken and put into what is called an ossuary. It's a smaller compartment, uh, the bones themselves. And so it could be that this man is talking about that. He's talking about that his father's been buried, but he's got to bury him again, and he can't go away. It could be that his father is near death, and so the man doesn't want to be called away on something, uh, possibly to, the, to another region, uh, and his father pass away with him not being there. And so in response to this, Jesus, it may seem a bit harsh how he responds. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's fairly stern. It seems uncaring. He doesn't wish to honor his father and mother. He doesn't wish for this man to honor his father and mother, as has been uh, commanded in Scripture. Well, if you look again to the parable of the sower... This disciple, it seems, would be best fitted into the category of that type of soil uh, where the, the seed is sown and thorns grow up around it. 
And they choke out the seed. And in Jesus' explanation, he said that this soil represents the person who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. By going to the other side of the sea, Jesus is winnowing down the crowds. He's deliberately making the group of followers smaller. Why is that? Because Jesus only wants those who are truly committed to him to follow him. So Jesus, to the first man, he says, hold on, not so fast. Slow down. Think about what you're doing. And to the second man, he says, if you don't make your move right now and follow me, I will be gone. Now is your chance. Now, whatever is behind the reason for this man not following Jesus, we don't fully know. It is clear that he is placing a priority on the cares of the world and not upon being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' response to him and his answer to Jesus is, in essence, let other arrangements be made. You have more pressing duties as a disciple of mine. Now, when times are easy for Christians, and it's advantageous in society to claim to be a Christian, all kinds of people will do this. They'll claim that they're a follower of Christ in order to gain advantage, in order to be accepted in society. It's very easy to do this. All kinds of people who would claim to follow him who would never do so if the environment were more hostile to Christianity. Well, at that point in Jesus' ministry, it wasn't too dangerous to follow him, was it? He was a a bit of a fad. Even the Pharisees, the scribes, they're there. They're listening to him. They haven't quite pinpointed him as an enemy of Judaism at this point. So it costs nothing for them to follow Jesus. But it also means that it didn't have to be much of a priority for them either. It doesn't cost them anything, but they don't need to make Jesus Christ a priority in their lives. And Jesus knew that the time for what we have come to call easy believism and the time for half-hearted commitment was about to be over. He knew that before he died, his followers would be winnowed. He says to Peter himself, I saw Satan. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to tear you to shreds. Jesus knows this will happen to his followers. And so only the most committed of his disciples will be permitted to follow him. Well, the same could be said for our time as well. It has been easy in the last several generations, more than that, for people to claim to know Jesus Christ and follow him. It has been advantageous for this to be the case. That may not be the case for much longer. We may be looked upon with scorn and derision by those who do not profess faith in Jesus Christ. It won't be easy always. I'm not a prophet. I'm not trying to make prophecy here. But we ought to expect persecution. We ought to expect challenges to our faith because of who we are in Christ Jesus. Jesus wants us to count the cost to follow him. And so in verse 20 and then verses 22 and 24, he does just that. He exposes the cost of following him to his disciples. So let's look now at those verses. To the scribe who said that he would follow Jesus, wherever he went, Jesus responded in verse 20, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now why did Jesus respond in this way? Why did he say this to this man? Well, this is the life that the Son of Man lived. This is the life he had. And his followers have no reason to think that they will have have it otherwise. We've got no reason to believe that we will have it easier 
that Jesus himself had. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 19 to 20, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We have no reason to expect that our lives should be any different than the life of our master. We have no reason to think that we uh, should always have a comfortable life as a believer of Christ. We should thank God for what he has given to us. We should thank God for the comforts he has given to us. But we cannot expect this. Instead, we should expect hardship and trial and persecution. This is what Jesus faced, and this is what we should expect to face as his followers. Well, if we want to be one of Christ's disciples, we must be ready to accept Jesus' commands. And there's no greater priority for Christ's disciple than to follow him where he leads. Where Jesus goes, we must go. Where he leads us, where he commands us to go, just as he did those disciples and commanded them to go over to the other side. We've got to be ready to go with him. And this is why Jesus responded to the man by saying, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is why he did this. This, is, this sounds harsh to us. But where does this command come from? From whom is it derived? This is a command that only God himself can give. But why is that? Because God in his scripture, in his word, has commanded that a man is to honor his father and his mother. A child must honor a father and mother. And this was considered, and I think rightly so, by the people in Jesus' time, as one of the highest of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. And certainly Jesus does not dispute this. Scripture makes clear that family obligations are important. And there's only one person's honor who takes precedence over the honor given to parents. And that is God himself. We see this uh, in Jesus himself when he speaks to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, verses 4 and 6. In that, cha- in that chapter, in those verses, Jesus insists on the importance of honoring one's parents. And yet he demands that we have greater loyalty to him. Greater loyalty to him than to our own parents. Well, Jesus fully understood who he was. He fully understood the demands he was making of his disciples. And he expected them to be fully committed to him. And he knew. He knew that his disciples right at that moment were about to be challenged in their commitment to him. Well, after this exchange with this disciple, verses 24, excuse me, 23 and 24 say, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Jesus departed for the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, there is no way to know whether the scribe who had approached Jesus or whether the disciple who Jesus had, had told to follow him, there's no way to know whether they were in the boat or whether they were among uh, the other boats that likely followed Jesus to the other side. But those disciples who, who followed Jesus, who heard his call and heeded his call, they were about to be tested in their faith. Now, even though the Sea of Galilee is a small body of water, it's not much more than a lake, uh, it, because of the way that it's situated, it's a very low lake 
uh, some 600 feet below sea level. It gets tremendous storms that come up on this body of water. They come up unexpectedly. Well, the fishing boats that Jesus and his disciples were in were not very large. They held at a maximum about 15 men. They would have easily been swamped by this great storm that comes up, like the one that Matthew describes. Jesus, for the time being, he's gotten away from the crowds. The one who makes demands of his disciples that only God can make is now asleep in the stern of the boat. And Jesus was not speaking speaking figuratively when he told the scribes that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus gets sleep wherever he gets opportunity. And in this case, he gets it in a boat crossing the lake. Well, the storm has reached a point where even experienced fishermen like Peter and James and John and Andrew, they're starting to panic. And Jesus, given over to fatigue, sleeps through it all. And the disciples become very worried, very concerned about what is going to happen to them. Well, let's look now at verses 25 to 27, the Son of Man. Verse 25 says, And, went, and they awoke... Excuse me, then they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. The disciples are following Jesus because he has called them, but they do not fully understand who Jesus is. They knew enough to, to call upon him to save them. They understood that he had done some amazing things. He had, he had cured the man of leprosy. He had made Peter's mother-in-law uh, to be healed from, from her illness, from her fever. They called upon this man who was not a fisherman by trade to save them from the storm that was swamping their boat. And in verse 26, Jesus says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? They're afraid, these disciples, because they are walking contradictions just like us. They had faith, but it was little faith. They knew that Jesus was someone special. They knew that he was probably someone called of God, but they didn't understand fully who he was. And yet they have committed to following him. And in the middle of this storm, they turn to him and they ask him to save them because they know that he can do this somehow. They don't understand how he can do it, but they know he can. But they are still afraid. They're afraid of what is taking place. For these disciples, it is a literal storm, but it's a figurative storm as well. It is a crisis of faith that they are having in addition to a crisis on that boat. They think, they hope, that Jesus can somehow do something about this storm. But there he is, peacefully sleeping in the back of the boat. And out of fear, they cry to Jesus, save us, Lord. And how does Jesus respond? Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? You know enough to call out to me to save you. Why are you then afraid? He rebukes them for their lack of faith. But he still responds to their cry for help. Verse 26 continues, Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Well, the disciples were hoping that Jesus could do something, but they did not expect him to do this. They never imagined that he could call an end to this storm that was raging upon the Sea of Galilee. The sea went from a great storm to a great calm. They were utterly at rest. 
We read in verse 27 that the disciples marveled. They were amazed at what Jesus had just done, and they were rightly amazed. And so they asked, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, being fishermen, being men of the the earth and of the sea, uh, these men had probably dreamed that they could somehow control the weather, that they could somehow control what was taking place. Many of us have dreamed the same thing. Those of you who work outdoors for a living, you wish sometimes that you could have control over when it rains and when uh, when the sun shines. These men would have desired to be able to control the weather to make it more favorable for catching fish. And they knew that this was something that only God could do. They knew that this was something that only God himself could make happen. And for all of our technological advances, for all that we have done, for all of our amazing powers as human beings, we still cannot control the wind and the waves. The best we can hope to do, humanly speaking, is ride them out. It is still the case that only God has control over these things. So what sort of man is Jesus? How can he do this when no one else can? Jesus is so tired that he can sleep through a storm. And yet he has the ability to make this storm go away. Who is this man? Now there are plenty of people. There are plenty of those who read this passage. They read other passages in the New Testament. And they say that Jesus obviously did not have the ability to control the winds and the waves. The storm naturally sprang up and it naturally went away just at the right time. Just when Jesus stood up to rebuke the winds. It was a natural occurrence all the way around. This is how people who do not have faith understand what took place here. You still want to think that Jesus wasn't a, wasn't a complete uh, scammer. Others say that this story is simply a fairy tale. It was made up uh, to sort of uh, accentuate the claims of, of the followers of Jesus. But to this, Jesus might say, I know what the skeptics say, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am? You see, unbelief will always argue from unbelief. A skeptic will always base his arguments about Jesus on his presuppositions of who he thinks Jesus is. He will think that Jesus couldn't possibly do what Matthew has recorded as Jesus doing in this book. Why? Because he doesn't believe. But it doesn't matter what the skeptic thinks. It doesn't matter when you come and stand before the Most Holy God and he asks you why you didn't believe. You cannot point to the skeptic and say, well, he told me that there's no way that Jesus Christ could have done these things. Why is that? Because each one of us, you and I, we are personally responsible. We're personally responsible for our unbelief. Jesus will hold us accountable for not believing in him. Not believing that he could do such a thing as calm the winds and the waves. So this passage confronts us with this question, what sort of man is this? And Jesus has already supplied the answer for us. He's already told us. Jesus is the son of man, as he says back in verse 20. The son of man. Well, this is the preferred title of Jesus. He, he prefers to use this title for himself uh, uh, other than any other. He will call himself the Son of Man 79 times in the Gospels. More than any other, t- any other title. 
He doesn't call himself the Son of God very often. Why does he do this? He uses this term, the Son of Man. But what does he mean when he calls himself by this name? Well, let's cut to the chase here. He is unambiguously referring to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, which say this, There came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, uh, uh, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am the one mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. I am the Son of Man, who comes before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, who is given the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. I am the eternal King, the Messiah, who has come to Israel to redeem His people. Jesus, the Son of Man, is both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. He sits at the Father's right hand as God and man today. He sits as our representative. He hears our prayers. He is our priest, our great high priest. He can identify with us in every single way. Why is that? Because he was a human being. He was tempted just like we are, yet he remained without sin. And he remained without sin. Why? Because he is also God. He is God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. He is God who alone can calm the storm that these disciples faced. But he is also the man who can sleep in the stern at the same time. Jesus must be both God and man to save us. He must be fully man. Why is that? Because he's got to take our sins upon himself on the cross. He's got to die in our place. The blood of goats, the blood of sheep cannot do what Jesus alone can do. Jesus was fully man. But he was also fully God. He must be fully God in order to withstand the fiery wrath of his Father's judgment. Being 100% man, Jesus identifies completely with us in our weaknesses. Being 100% God, Jesus is completely without sin. And so he alone can save us. This is what we are required to believe if we are to be saved from our sin. And it is to the church's discredit in this country that much of the church no longer teaches this about Jesus Christ. This most important doctrine about who Jesus is, what sort of man he is. And it is no wonder, really, that when the youth of the church get to a point in their lives when they are faced with trials and temptations, when they are faced with challenges that they have never seen, that they fall away. Because they have been taught a false doctrine about who Jesus Christ is. For far too long, a good portion of the church in America has been teaching that all God wants is for us to be happy. All God wants... It's for us to live lives that are easygoing and comfortable. Try to preach that gospel in Africa. Try to preach that where all people know is suffering. Try to preach it in in Mexico. It will not fly. They do not know the comforts that we know. Life as a Christian 
is very difficult in other places of the world. When we are, when we are to overcome, uh, when we are overcome by trials and temptations, when we are faced with these things and we are wiped out because we live in a fallen world, this teaching, this teaching that God is not, excuse me, that Jesus is not God, it does not serve us. Jesus, the God-man, he sovereignly leads his followers into the storm. And there he shows us that he is sovereignly able to take us out of it. That he is sovereignly able to command the wind and the waves to die down and to be calm. Well, many of you now are in the midst of a storm, both literally and figuratively. This is the anniversary of the the fifth anniversary of uh, Hurricane Katrina. We've witnessed many great and powerful storms. We cannot control these things. We have no power. We are helpless in their path. But Jesus Christ has that power. And if you're in the midst of a personal storm, the figurative storm, the crisis of faith, Jesus alone has the power to calm the seas and to calm the wind. He can bring peace in your life that you cannot have otherwise. Why is that? Because he is God. But he is also man. He is God. And he can control all things. But he is also man. He is sympathetic to us in our weakness. He understands what we face as people in a fallen world. If you're in the midst of this and you're struggling, remember that Jesus Christ is right there with you. He's with you. He loves you. And he calls you to faithful obedience to himself. Jesus has given us his spirit to live in our hearts if we profess faith in him, repent of our sins. Jesus alone has the power to deliver you from what you are facing right now. Let's come to the Lord Jesus in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Savior, We come to you now and we thank you, dear Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Father, that we have been able to uh, consider this portion of your word. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would give us peace, that you would calm our spirits, that you would enable us, dear Lord, to faithfully follow you. Help us, O Lord, to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.